Let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 33. So Exodus chapter 33 is on page 93. We'll read the entire chapter. Exodus 33 and verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite and the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Hivite and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, because you are an obstinate people, and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard this, when the people heard this sad word, they went into mourning, and none of them put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the sons of Israel, You are an obstinate people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment, I would destroy you. Now therefore put off your ornaments from you, that I may know what I shall do with you. So the sons of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And it came about whenever Moses went out to the tent that all the people would arise and stand, each at the entrance of his tent, and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. Whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship, each at the entrance of his tent. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways, that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us, so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken. For you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. And will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me. And you shall stand there on a rock. And it will come about while my glory is passing by, 
that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So far, the scripture. Dear friends, we have been working through the Heidelberg Catechism, walking along a path of life that the Catechism sets before us. We've walked through some dark paths, considering our sin and our misery, but now the Catechism has led us to consider God, and especially by way of the uh, the phraseology given us in the Apostles' Creed, right? I believe in God the Father. So we considered last week God as our Father, creator of heaven and earth. And we certainly considered that uh, quite a bit in our series on Genesis. But then we come to the God of providence. And so that too is uh, not explicitly stated in the Apostles' Creed, but it's bound up in the idea of God as our Father. Right? If a father does anything for his children, certainly he provides for them. And so our instructor now brings us to this doctrine of providence. And in the Catechism, question 27 and 28, we are given these beautiful words. And, you know, there's always certain expressions in the Catechism that kind of, throughout the years, have become very precious to God's people. And I think you find some of that language here in this in, this, uh, in these answers. But let's begin then with question 27. What do you understand by the providence of God? Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. And then in question 28, and I think here again you have one of those expressions that has really stuck with so many, right? How does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? And then here it is, we can be patient in adversity and thankful in prosperity. And for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature will separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. So this is the understanding then that God would give us about providence. And not only did God create the world, he brought it into existence, and we certainly have spoken quite a bit about that, but he also preserves it. He, he provides for his creation. Now this is opposed, of course, to the understanding of the deist, right? I think probably you're familiar with that word, the deist, the deists uh, certainly believe that God created the world, but then they really believe that God just let it to run on its own, that he stepped away from it, as it were. Uh, it's often compared to a clock or a watch that a person winds up and then lets, lets it run down. That is the deist understanding, so that there's creation, but not providence. Well, biblically, of course, we have to reject that idea. There is certainly both creation and providence. But let's consider that idea then, of, of creation, or I mean of providence, and especially under these three headings. And by the way, these are really quite classical headings that you'll find in, in most Reformed theology, books of theology, that they divide up God's providence into these three aspects, into these three different ways of looking at it. And the first is preservation, that's given us in point one, and then government in point two, 
and then on the back side is concurrence. These three ways of looking at God's providence. So let's think about these three ways then. And again, these three terms are not necessarily biblical terms, right? They're terms that uh, theologians use to help us understand and to, and to organize the teaching of the Scripture. So in the first place then we have this doctrine of providence, or of uh, the first way of looking at the doctrine of providence is God's preserving hand. And you find that in the Catechism, in that very first part of the answer to question 27, that providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds us as with His hand, heaven and earth and all creatures. So there is that idea then of preservation. Now that can be kind of a, a difficult thing for us to imagine because we do tend to think, right, because that's what we see, that, that this earth seems to be, uh, to run on its own. And that uh, there doesn't really seem to be any, anybody steering and controlling this earth, and that it more or less just seems to exist, and it does kind of seem to be winding down, right? Those of uh, you who, who learned these things in high school about the second law of thermodynamics, right, that all these systems slowly wind their way down, right? That's what we, we see with our eyes, but the scripture teaches us something quite different. And that is that this whole fabric of this world, this universe, would collapse into nothingness the second God withdrew his hand. Just as God brought this whole universe out of nothing and brought it into existence, in the same way, this universe would collapse out of existence the minute God's preserving hand was removed. Now that's not just my idea, but I've given you some text there that I'd like to consider. The first is Hebrews 1 and verse 3. Hebrews 1 and verse 3 teaches us this very explicitly, and he, that is Jesus Christ, is the radiance of his glory, that is of the Father's glory, and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Now that's interesting because we're used to hearing that God has created things by the word of his power. But you see how here the apostle, or not the apostle, but whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, teaches us that God upholds everything. That he did not stop on the six days of creation, but that he continues throughout all of history to uphold, or to use the word that we have here, preserve all things by the word of his power. We have a very similar uh, teaching given us in Colossians 1 and verse 17. Colossians 1 and verse 17. Now here I'm on page 1178. But Colossians 1 and verse 17. Actually, let's, let's back up to verse 16. Colossians 1 and verse 16. For by him all things were created both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible. Well, there we have the truth of creation. But then it continues in verse 17. He is before all things. That is, Jesus was, he existed before creation. You know the common expression in the Bible is before the foundation of the world. He existed before all that. But then the second part of verse 17, and in him all things hold together. Now that's a very interesting expression. In him, that is in Christ. Or it can be translated, and by him. 
All these things hold together. Now here I can't help but think, and I know children, young people, you've seen this in your science classes, right? The diagrams of the sun, right? And what's the next planet, right? Mercury and Venus and Earth, right? And, and they have these diagrams, and a lot of times they'll even make these actual models, right, where these things spin, right? And all these things are held together. They're held together by, by, by Jesus Christ. Now, even more interesting for myself, and you know that I have the privilege now of teaching this class on apologetics at the Reformed Heritage School, and so I've been able to study some of these things more closely, is the fine-tuning of the universe. And it's actually remarkable. The, the number of these uh, constants, as they're called, the, these, these, these numbers that could be just a little bit off, and all of life would cease to exist. Just one simple example is the distance of the earth from the sun. That's an easy one, right? Because if it was too far out, it would be too cold. If it was or, yeah, too cold and too close, it would be too hot. But there's, there's like over 50 of these things, many of them which are far beyond my understanding, but, but of these things that are, that are fine-tuned so that life can exist on this planet. Now that's all very interesting from a scientific standpoint, but then we read in Scripture, and in Him, all things hold together. So, God preserves all these things. And, and, and that's exactly what we find when we look at our world. Now, in Nehemiah 9 and verse 6, we have another expression given us from Nehemiah. Nehemiah 9 and verse 6, and this is actually uh, in, uh, Nehemiah is confessing the sins of the people. And Nehemiah, again, and you've seen that in each of these instances that the doctrine of creation is linked with the doctrine of providence. And in Nehemiah 9 and verse 6, you alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the sea and all that is in them. You give life to all of them and the heavenly host bows down before you. So there specifically the idea of God preserving not just the inanimate creation, but the animate creation, the life, uh, all the life, plant and animal and human life, it is supported and preserved by God. So this is the doctrine then of preservation, that God preserves his creation in existence and provides in that way for all of his creatures. We move then to the idea of government. And in this, we find it also given to us in our catechism, and so rules them, and then this is in answer to question 27. And so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come not to us by chance, but by his fatherly hand. So here is the idea then that God rules his creation, government. And the idea here, dear friends, is not only that God is preserving it, but that God is guiding all the events of history towards a goal. That God has a purpose in this. That he is aiming at something. And he is orchestrating everything to meet that goal. That's the idea behind government or ruling. That is that God is guiding all things. He's guiding us today. He's guiding us tomorrow. All things are happening exactly as he sees fit. Now, which book of the Bible would you point to 
as, and here I'm not even asking for a verse of the Bible. I'm asking for a whole book that, that has this so, so powerfully. And it's a story, incidentally, that never mentions the name God. You know which one I'm referring to? Esther. Esther, the book of Esther. I, I, I can't think of any other book, right, where, where you see God is orchestrating all these events, right? Haman builds a gallows for Mordecai and then ends up getting hung on it himself, right? And, and every verse, God is manipulating and controlling and orchestrating all the events towards his own preordained goal. Now, my friends, what, the, what is in the book of Esther is just a microcosm, right? A smaller picture of the whole universe. Every event from the minute that God created the world to the time when God will bring it all to an end. Everything in creation, God is moving towards his own preordained goal. And that is the idea of government. And I gave you a few verses in Ephesians 1, verse 9. In Ephesians 1, verse 9, although really, I, I really think the book of Esther is such a perfect proof of this idea. But in Ephesians 1, in verse 9, God speaks to us about the mystery. He says, God made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, that is, in Christ. Now, what was that mystery? Well, this is the goal that we're speaking about, right? Verse 10 goes on with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. And now here's the goal. That is the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on the earth. Now there's still something of a mystery in those words, isn't there? But in some way, God is going to bring all things under Christ. And we read in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ is then going to offer up the kingdom to the Father. As, 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 it's as if, Jesus says, mission accomplished. The goal has been achieved. And all things have been summed up in Christ. All things have been brought under his feet. You might say that what went wrong in the Garden of Eden, when, the, when Eve listened to the serpent, and the serpent made inroads into God's kingdom, he won a battle, you might say. Well, at the end, the mystery is that all things, not just in the Garden of Eden, but in all the universe, are going to be brought under Christ once more. And Christ will be all and in all. And he will hand over the kingdom. It's as if he's, he's reconquered the kingdom from the serpent. And he'll hand that over to God the Father, to his glory. You have a very similar expression given us in Colossians 1 and verse 19. This speaking not about the ultimate goal, but about a, a subordinate goal that God had in bringing Christ to this earth in, first, or in Colossians 1 and verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure, or it was the Father's plan, for all the fullness to dwell in him. And through him, that is through Christ, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross. Through him, I say, that is through Jesus, whether things on earth or things in heaven. I'm sorry, that, that is speaking about the ultimate goal. I said that it was a subordinate goal. This is the same idea that we have in Ephesians 1, that all things would be summed up, 
all things would be brought under the feet of Jesus Christ. Well, there you have the idea of government. That God has a goal. And he's bringing all things to that goal. Then we have this idea in the third place of concurrence. Now that's a a more difficult word. Uh, Usually this concept of God's providence is summed up under the, the Latin expression concursus. Concursus, which is typically translated as concurrence. Now here we have in the catechism, in the very last part of the question of of question 28, it says, for all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. Now this means, dear friends, that as God governs this universe and orchestrates all the events towards his own goal, that he moves, not just inanimate objects, which is not so difficult to understand, but that God even controls people Free people who make free choices, who choose this and not that. That even there, God is working in the minds and the hearts of people so that they do what he has ordained them to do. Now this is a very difficult thing for us to understand. And there's, there's certainly a mystery here of how we're to understand this. But think about these texts that teach us, for instance, in Proverbs 21 and verse 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turns it whithersoever he will. Do you hear that? Even the king's heart. Now, my friends, a king is the last person that you would think you could control. Kings are very proud of their power. In fact, kings are used to controlling other people. But now here, God teaches us, through the word of Solomon, that the king's heart, even the heart of a king... Even the proudest king, Nebuchadnezzar, or you name it, the proudest king, maybe today we could say Vladimir Putin, his heart is in the, under the control of God. And God can turn that heart whithersoever he will. So that be it Putin, or be it Nebuchadnezzar, or be it whoever it may be, God makes that man or that woman choose exactly the choice that God wants them to make. Now, let me give you another text. In Ezra 7 and verse 27, Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, says says Ezra, which hath put such a thing as this in the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord. Now, I'm not so concerned about about the actual situation here, but notice what he says here, that the Lord God of our fathers put this thing in the king's heart. Exodus 3, verse 21 God says, I will give this people favor, that is, his own people of Israel, I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. God is saying that I will so control the hearts of the Egyptians that they will come to favor you. You will have favor in their eyes. They will want to favor you. So that you see, my friends, that even the desires of the Egyptian people were under the God's control. And that he could move that in the way that he wanted to do. Now this is always something of a more controversial point, isn't it? Because we, we, we certainly believe, as Christians, that people are free. Now my friends, the, the truth of the matter is that if there were no God, human actions would not be free. Right? Then we would just be biological machines 
And even my speaking right now would just be sounds in the air. Right? But that God made us in His image. And He gave us that, uh, that as agents, we are free to make choices and to act in accordance with our own motives and in our own reasons. We don't... Uh, we, we are not coerced. If somebody puts a gun to our head and tells us to do something, then we're not free, right? But as God created us in His image, that we are free. Now, of course, uh, we know, and as Reformed people, we confess that uh, people abuse their freedom in, uh, to sin. But we still believe that people are free. And that is, that is a difficult thing then to answer. How is a person free to choose uh, what he chooses, and yet that God is moving him. And, and, and God is controlling all the events of history to his own goal. Well, my friends, I think that, that, that part of the answer to this question, and, and I, I don't claim that we can answer this question, but part of the answer is in what the scripture itself tell, tells us. That the way God controls human uh, people who make free choices is not the way like we control our car. When we go down the road, we, we control our car to go this way or to go that way. The car is basically just a block of steel in our hands, right? Ultimately, that's what it is. But notice what the scripture says, that the king's heart is in his hand. That means, dear friends, that God has the heart of the king, the soul, the mind of the king, is so in God's hand that God can control that person by, you might say, controlling even what that person wants to do. It is not as if God, God controls the person by pushing them this way and then pushing them that way and pushing them forward, taking them back, like you might a robot, or like we do our cars, but that God, and only God can do this, of course, that God gets into a person's mind. And we know, of course, that this happens in the work of regeneration, right? That God gets into the mind of a person, He softens the hard heart. And He sweetly, our canons, the canons of Dort say, He sweetly draws them after Himself. But congregation, that also can happen in the reverse direction. And that God can even control the mind of a person such that they do the thing that God, that they freely choose to do the thing that God would have them to do. Now, there are many more difficult discussions that happen, especially when it comes to, to the whole subject of free will and the difference between a person's will being free and, and a free agency, the person himself being free. I don't want to get into that all this evening. Those are certainly interesting discussions. But, but when we understand this doctrine of concurrence, we see that God acts and man acts. There's one example I can give you, I think, that, that is, helps clarify this. Let's think about the inspiration of Scripture. If I say to you, dear friends, who wrote the Bible? Now, some of you might say, well, this particular portion was, was written by Moses. Exodus 33 was written by Moses. And this is the prophet Jeremiah, right? And when we turn to the New Testament, I come to Mark. And yet we all confess that this is a book that was written by God. How do we explain that? How is it that case? Well, who wrote it? Did, did David, Mark, Matthew, Paul... Did they write scripture or did God write scripture? Well, it's both, isn't it? And here you see this doctrine of concurrence that even as Matthew was writing his gospel, 
God was behind him, wasn't he? And that's why in a very real sense we can say that God wrote the Bible, and yet that Matthew wrote the Bible. The Bible is 100% God's word, and yet in the same way we can say that this particular portion, Matthew, or let's use Exodus, that's our text tonight, that Exodus was written 100% by Moses. But just as God acted, so Moses acted. Again, you can say, well, I don't necessarily understand that. Well, I'm not sure that, I'm quite sure that I don't entirely understand it either. Right? There's something of a mystery here. But God acts, and we act. And God has our hearts in his hands, and he can turn it as the rivers of water to go where he wants it to go. That's the idea of concurrence. I think that helps us too to understand what, what Jesus said to Nicodemus. Right? When Nicodemus said, or when Jesus said to Nicodemus, except a man be born from above, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now to be born from above means to be completely reborn like a child with a whole new set of desires, with a whole new set of a way of thinking. And in that sense, God is able to, to control the will of a person so that they will and they make the choices that he wants them to make, and yet that they do so freely. Well, let me, let me move then to my first application because really this first application is just a spin-off of what we've been talking here when we talk about concurrence because then the obvious question that immediately jumps into our mind is there's so many evil choices made in this world. How can we speak about God moving the will of a human person, right? And not a single human choice happens apart from the will of God. Not one. Even the most insignificant choices that we make, they all happen under God's sovereign will. Every choice. But so many of our choices are evil. We sin. Other people sin. How can we understand this? Because if God is moving the will of a person to make a sinful choice, then is not God in some sense responsible for that? And now, my friends, we come up hard against an area where our mind just can't penetrate. There are some people who want to resolve the dilemma or, or solve the mystery by saying, you know, God doesn't know what choices a person is going to make. This is the openness of God, people. Perhaps you've heard them. The openness of God. Open theists, they're often referred to. And what do they do? My friends, they tear God off his throne. They deny the sovereignty of God. They deny that God is God. And so they make God a creature. Obviously, we can't accept that. And so we insist on teaching that God moves behind every human choice. He knows what people are going to choose before they do it. And he even moves them to make that choice that they make. And yet that in some sense, God is not responsible for the sin and the evil that people commit. Now one illustration that a man gave me that I thought was somewhat helpful. He talked about a book. And if you think about a book, we talk about that book's author. That is the man who actually wrote the book. He actually sat down and typed out the words to that book. He's responsible for the content of that book. And yet, in another sense, 
There may be a publisher or even another person who caused him to write that book. So in a sense, the person who caused the book to be written is not the author of the book, but he is the cause of the book being written in the first place. Maybe does that help us to understand this dilemma? That in one sense, God is the cause, and I I, I really hesitate to say this tonight, because it sounds terrible, but that God is the cause, in one sense, of the evil that happens in the world. But I, I hasten to add that he is not the performer of it. God is not the one who made the choice to do the sin and the evil. Now again, these are, these are very difficult matters and we, and we sense immediately that maybe we ought to just back off and leave the mystery where it is. And yet I think that in some sense we certainly know that sin and evil was in God's plan from the very beginning. When, man, when Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, that did not catch God by surprise. It is not as if God had a beautiful plan and then Adam and Eve foiled it or threw a wrench in God's plans. We, 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 we dare not say that. And that's why I, I'm willing to even say in a very reverent, cautious sense that God is the cause of this world as we see it with both its good and its evil. And yet that God is not the author of it, that God is not the agent of it. He is not the one that makes that sinful choice. Now, I know that that does not solve every difficulty. And I'm going to leave it at that tonight. But maybe if we, I, I think if we, if we bow with our own limited human understanding before this mystery, we have to do that all the time, don't we? We are always coming up against things that we just can't resolve with our own limited understanding. I make haste to my second point, congregation prayer. This is another thing that often leads us to wonder if God knows the choices I'm going to make and if he even moves me in some sense to make them, um, then why, why would I pray? Why would I, I pray and say, Lord, would you please bless our endeavors here? Or would you please watch over my children here? Or, or would you please bless this? Or whatever it may be, when, God, already, when the, the, God has that all worked out already in his plan. And, and do you really think that prayer is going to change God's mind? Well, my friends... In that sense, I really want to bring you back to this chapter that we read together from Exodus. Because I think you see here in Exodus uh, a remarkable instance. And here again, I, I would never dare say these things if it weren't in the Scripture. But look what you have in Exodus 33, where God is very angry. God is incensed with His people here. Sometimes it's hard when you just jump in a passage to realize what's happening. But in this context, Israel has sinned with the golden calf and God is very angry with these people. Look at You can even see some of that in verse 1. In Exodus 33 and verse 1, God says to Moses, Depart, go away from here. Go up from here. You and the people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt. It's almost as if God is now washing His hands of His people and saying, I'm finished with you people. You want your golden calf? You have your golden calf. I'm done with you, Moses. Take your people and get them out of here. God says, I'll send an angel before you to drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, but I'm not going with you. Verse 3. I will not go up in your midst because you are an obstinate people and I might destroy you on the way. God says, you're so prone to sin and idolatry that I'm pretty sure that if I went with you, 
I would just destroy you anyway because you'd fall into sin. And part of the reason I, I read this with you, my friends, is I want you to see in this passage how God really brings it. This is the almighty God, the creator of the universe, who has every event planned out. He knows the end from the beginning. And look how he speaks to Moses in this very human way. Moses, the people might sin, and then I would have to destroy them. And of course, the people are very sad about this. Moses is devastated about this. And now, in verse 12, notice how Moses prays. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Now, in a sense, God had told him, because God said, I'll send an angel before you, but I'm not coming with you. And moreover, says Moses, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. My friends, do you hear how Moses, and again, how, how can I say this in a reverent way? Moses engages in this holy arguing, this holy negotiating, as it were, with God. And God says to, and Moses says to God, Lord, you told us that you knew us by name. Lord, you told us that we found favor in your sight. Notice how God is bringing the word of God back to God himself. And then Moses makes his request. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you so that I may find, find, that I may find favor in your sight. And then notice what Moses says at the very end of verse 13. Consider too that this nation is your people. And again, my friends, I say it with great reverence that Moses here, as it were, corrects what God said previously. That God said, take your people, Moses, and get them out of here. And Moses now takes, Lord, no, these are your people, O Lord. You brought us out of Egypt and you made this covenant with us. And you made these promises to us, Lord. This is how Moses speaks to God. And what does God say in verse 14? Really, my friends, verse 14 is a miracle of God's grace. It is a pure, undeserved miracle of God's grace. And I want you to read it that way. Because now God says, My presence shall go with you. Now, my friends, that is a miracle. Because looking at it from the human perspective, it looks as if Moses changed God's mind. That Moses, as it were, persuaded God, Lord, don't just send the angel. I can't have the angel, Lord. If I leave this place and I go forward, I can't go with an angel. I need your presence, Lord. In fact, you can read on in verse 15. Moses said, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us out from here. Don't lead us away from here, Lord. Because without your presence, we are a lost people. Now, my friends, to put that in the context of the sermon this evening, God knew from start to finish everything that was going to happen with his people. But now God works in this human way to bring, and don't, and, and, and don't forget, congregation, when we look at this from God's perspective, that it was God who was moving the heart of Moses to make this as I called it, a holy argument. And that's the point I want to make about our prayers this evening. That when we pray, we don't know God's plan. But God's plan is not just to bring us to this place, whatever that may be, but to do it in a way of prayer. 
And so even though God represents himself in this passage as a human person who makes plans and then changes his plans, behind it all is the sovereign God of the universe who knew all along what he was going to do with Moses, what he was going to do with his people Israel. And part of that plan, my friends, was to stir up in the heart of Moses this holy indignation, as it were, and to say, no, Lord, you have to come with us. You promised us, Lord, you said you knew me by name. That's a mark of friendship. You promised us your favor. You told us, Lord, you brought us out of Egypt. All of that, dear friends, God, by his sovereign will, was stirring up in the heart of Moses. Moses didn't know it. Moses wasn't aware of it. And the same thing is true, my friends, in all of our prayer life. You know, this is such a striking passage of Scripture. Actually, this came to me much later in the week when most of my sermon had been written. But it struck me so much how you see here both the the sovereignty of God's providence behind all these events, and yet the, the, the way that God deals with His people in a way of teaching them to rely upon Him, and even God teaches His people to bring back His own word, His own promise, and to say, Lord, this is your people. I am your servant. You called me to lead these people, Lord. And now would you give me your presence? Because I can't go up to Israel. I can't lead these people through the wilderness with only an angel. If your presence doesn't go with me, Lord, we're lost. Oh, that's remarkable, isn't it? How God teaches us how to pray in this chapter. To pray as if we can change God's mind. Even while we confess that God's plan is perfect from beginning to end. There's something of a mystery here, isn't there, dear friends? There's something of a mystery here. Let's not try to solve the mystery tonight, but let's act on the mystery and to pray earnestly to God, to be men and women of prayer, and to know that God even leads us and brings us to prayer. My friends, I I close then with this last consideration from Exodus 33. I... I hope you saw that point there in verse 20, or in verse 21. That is such a beautiful verse that Moses, after, again, I I say it in a human way, after persuading God to change his mind and to, to go with them to Israel, then God says to Moses' request to show him his glory, then God said, behold, there is a place by me. And my friends, I want to leave that with you this evening. There is a place by God. In all the ups and downs of this world, in all the pain, in all the dysfunction, all the things that our catechism gave us, right? That long list of rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, health, sickness, prosperity, poverty, at funerals and weddings, in all these things, in all these circumstances of life, there is a place by me, God says. And I love that expression. Because I feel as if God is saying that in all these trials, all these situations, Moses, that you're going to face, there is a place by me. And I believe that that place is the doctrine of God's providence. That that place with God is his providence. My friends, I ask you this evening, God teaches us in his word that all things work together for good to those who love him. Do you believe that this evening? Do you believe that? I know that our faith is often shaken. But that is the truth that God asks us to believe. He calls us to believe it today. And I, I feel as if he says, there is a place by me.
There is this happy place. There is this happy place, my friends, in all the storms of life where you can be sheltered in this rock and you can find so much comfort that can, that can lead us to get up in the morning and to go to bed at night knowing that God is our Father. And God teaches us, right? God teaches us to call Him Father. Why? Because He is he's a God of providence. This is that place by me. What a happy place, my friends. I think of Peter. He's sinking in the waves. Why? Because he looks at the waves. But I see Jesus as saying, Peter, there's a place by me. And if you would look to me, if you would take my hand, then you would walk on water. So many other situations in life, dear friends, where the doctrine of God's providence is that happy cleft in the rock where we can go and find safety and security no matter what life may bring us. I pray, congregation, that we would find that place, that we would get in that place by faith, and that we would take refuge in this doctrine of God's providence. For all its difficulty, it brings us such unspeakable comfort. May God grant that for you and our families, for his name's sake. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we draw near to you as our great Father. Lord, this doctrine of providence uh, does cause us difficulty in many respects. And yet, Lord, it is an ocean of comfort for your people. Oh, Lord, that each one of us could get secure in that cleft of that rock, that place by you where we can stand, where we can take comfort. And that in all the storms of life, Lord, we can know that you go with us. Oh, to know that you are with us, Lord, on Monday and on Tuesday and on Wednesday. That every day, every moment of our life, when we are in the lowest point and when we are in the highest point, that your hand is stretched out towards us, that you still call us, that you still say, friend, there's a place by me. There's a place near me. There is a place where you can find comfort and security in a broken, confused world, a world full of war and destruction. Lord, I pray that we would find that place and that we would get into it and that your sovereign grace would lead us to rejoice in God our Savior. Lord, bless each member of this church this evening. Bless us, Lord, this night and bless us this week. Make us to be good and faithful soldiers for Jesus Christ and to march on in this truth and in the comfort and the security it provides us. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.